Shalom, welcome to the Parsha GYS. This is Amet, aka Shomer Man. We are fresh out of the fast of Yod Zayim Betamuz, the 17th Tammuz. And this year it was a Baruch Hashem to have Yod Zayim Tammuz on Shabbat because it is the beginning of a tikkun for bringing in the final redemption. Because, like I mentioned in previous drashas, that, you know, all of Israel has the merit to hasten the redemption. And, you know, even in Kepha's writings, he teaches us about hastening the redemption. And so, just wanted to point that out as we're heading into Parsha Pinchas. So, this is not technically the Parsha Pinchas get you some, but there will be a little of that, and I want to finish up a little bit more from Parsha Balak, because these two Parshot actually run right into each other, and uh, one thing I did not get to mention is that Parsha Balak, actually, you can rearrange the word Balak into Kabal, or Kabel, which means to receive, and if you think about when Mashiach Yeshua was asked, is Yochanan Eliyahu? And he says, yes, if you can receive it, because the whole time the question is, is Yochanan Eliyahu? You know, he's doing all these things that Eliyahu would do. He has this zeal. He's uh, heralding the the king who is coming forth, you know, and obviously he's the front runner to Mashiach Yeshua, like the way that Pesach is the front runner to Sukkot. You know, there's a six month time difference between their births and you kind of look at that picture and so if you look at these two Torah portions Kabel Pinchas receiving Pinchas and now we're in the 22 days because if you technically go from Yod Zayim Betamuz to the 10th of Av because you know you start on the 9th of Av with a fast and it goes all the way into the next day and it's like we have this amazing potential here to really tell Hashem, you know what, like we messed up before and, you know, there have been centuries and generations of unfortunate events. But this time, Hashem, we ask that it will cease and we ask that you will add the olive to our Gola, which Gola is the word for exile. And when you add an olive to Gola, it becomes Geula, which means redemption. And so really just taking this time to say, Hashem, please bring us out of exile. Bring us in to Eretz Yisrael with the building of the Beit HaMikdash, the return of Mashiach Yeshua speedily and soon in our days. And you know the clouds of glory that the Messiah comes on when we merit the redemption, those clouds are generated by our prayers. Those clouds are the sukkahs that we build on Sukkot. Or I should say the Sukkot that we build on Sukkot. Because everything about the sukkah is all about a cloud. It's all about being surrounded in the glory of Hashem. That's why you need to be able to see through the roof of it because you need to be able to see the heavens, basically, you know, and literally the Kehot Humash brings down that the roofing of the sukkah 
is the smoke from the Ketorit of Yom Kippur. And so you think about your teshuva, the atonement, and you think about the cloud, the prayer, all of that coming together in literally the culmination of all of the Yom Tov, which would be Sukkot, the the marriage festival, so to speak, the end gathering. That really sets up this beautiful picture and display of could Mashiach return? Would Mashiach return on the clouds of glory? Would he return on top of our sukkahs? And, you know, one of the things is that redemption starts in our own homes, in our own tents. You know, all of the tents of Yisrael, if you go back to when Bilam himself mentioned, you know, Matovu, Ohalekayakov, Mishkinoteka Yisrael, how goodly are the tents of Jacob, the dwellings of Yisrael, that great prophecy and that great blessing that he uttered is all about, you know, Hashem's Shekinah dwelling in the midst of all the tents of Yisrael. It's not that Hashem wanted to have this Mishkan and him only dwell in the Mishkan. He literally said, build a Mishkan that I may dwell among the children of Yisrael. Because he wants to be in each and every one of our homes. And if we have no Aleph in our Gola, if we have no Geula, basically, going on in our own home, how could we expect a grand Geula in Eretz Israel? All the things that it takes to cause that to happen, we have this time that we're currently in, this year, to, to rectify and to make Tikkun, to literally repair those things. Why are we having all this baseless hatred in our hearts? Hating grace is really what that comes down to. Thinking that people are not worthy or thinking that we're better than others or thinking that there needs to be all these divisions and discriminations. And that's not good. And, you know, that's why the second temple was destroyed. But the first temple was destroyed because of the second thing on a smaller level. You know, because the first temple was destroyed because of idolatry, immorality, and um, murder. Which, really, if you kind of put those all together, those kind of all work in tandem with one another. But, according to Shonuf Pankas, he brings down that the three things for which the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed culminated and the baseless hatred that destroyed the second temple. So literally the first and second temple were destroyed because of the same things, but the second temple was destroyed in a greater degree. So that's uh, one of the things, that that is the thing actually, that we need to be taking care of during this time. So more converts... And being excited about people who are currently walking in ways of idolatry and walking in ways that are contrary to Torah for the simple fact that Hashem would even move on their hearts, cleanse them and purify them and fill them with the Ruach HaKodesh, cause them to desire to walk in Torah. Like that should make us super excited. You know, there's a parable that Mashiach talks about about one who decides the wages of the workers for the day 
And there are workers who started in the morning for this agreed price. And then throughout the day, more and more workers come in and these workers get paid the same price. And at the end of the day, when it's time to pay out, the people who started earlier Sleek out. The people who started earlier are upset. And it's like, why are you upset? Did I did you not agree to the payment that I was that I told you I would give you? And it's like, well yeah, we agreed to that, but these people just got here. How are they supposed to make the same price? And that's the that's the kingdom. You know, that's an illustration of what's actually going on. You know, most of us who are brand new into Judaism, you know, I'm talking like five years and less, you know, we're, we fit the bill for those people who just got here and we're getting paid these wages that were promised to those who've been doing this for thousands of years and generations and centuries, you know, and it's just like, we could easily be looked down upon, but like, we're super excited and we're like, oh wait, we're being looked down upon. Like, what is this? You know? And it's just like, Hashem is wanting all of us to be the congregation of Israel, the the people who come together as one body to shine light into the four corners of the earth. And that light that we're supposed to shine into the four corners of the earth is the light of Mashiach. And while we're talking about Mashiach, it's so beautiful to me that the word for uh, return And the word for come is the same in Ivrit, Yavo. So Yavo can literally mean he will come or he will return. So if you think about Bo Yavo, come, he will come or return, he shall return. You know, we say this in the Birkat Hamazon. And this is also uh, a song by the way, by Benny Friedman, you know, in this current three weeks, we're not listening to music right now, so there will be no singing of that, but uh, there is Shabbat, so, you know, but with that being said, no matter if you have been acquainted with Mashiach Yeshua, or you're yet to be acquainted with Mashiach Yeshua, because all of Yisrael, Bezrat Hashem, are crying out, Bo Yavo, Boyavo Mashiach, we're all saying, you know, come Messiah or return Messiah all at the same time. And I think that's just such an incredible encouragement and inspiration to do what we do. And it's not this whole thing that we need to go out and evangelize and be on street corners and do all that kind of crazy nonsense because, and I know I, d- I did, I just said nonsense, I know. And I don't regret it because it is, it it really is. If you think about the fact that you're going to go out and spend hours or however many times you're going to do this and you're approaching people who are busy with life and they're trying to hold to a schedule, they may be having a rough day and they may need you to talk to them. True. But here's the deal. If you're going out and just forcing the kingdom up on people, that's a problem because Hashem didn't do that to us. You know, how how are people truly drawn into the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, they have to make themselves receptive. 
You know, you can't go to a closed door and just kick it down. You know, chances are the owner of that property will probably, well, if you live in Texas anyway, take some kind of force that you will regret uh, doing that. But not even to go that far. I mean, it's just rude to go around kicking doors in and being like, hey, you will listen up to this. And I want to make you feel guilty first so that you can accept what I offer. You know, because really that's what the evangelism was, you know, at least the one I was a part of. Maybe it's changed and maybe it's more nicer now and trying to offer people food first and then try to get at them. But either way, that's just not just just avoid the whole thing. And let's just get out of all the semantics with that. How are we supposed to be a light to the nations is the question. And that is not how you are a light to the nations. The way you are a light to the nations is to be a light to your own nation, a light to your own self, a light to your own home, a light to your own body, your your soul. How are you expected to shine light out if there is no light shining inside of you? You know, the other thing about the light is that our eyes are the lamps to our body. You know, and so we want to make sure that we're putting good things in front of our eyes so that our bodies can light up, you know, and it's kind of funny because it almost seems like we're a reflector when it comes to that. And it's like, well, technically we are, you know, the only reason we can shine light is because Hashem is light and his Torah, his word is light. Mashiach is light and Mashiach should be inside of us, you know, and so. I'm just thinking about all of that during the fast earlier uh, on Yod, or yes, Yod Chet, which would be Chai, which is life, by the way, uh, the 18th of Tammuz. And during that day, you know, it was so great to recite, you know, penitential prayers and to uh, extend out the prayer services and really go into self-introspection and really say, Why is the temple not rebuilt yet? Why has Mashiach not returned? And what am I really doing to help that? And what am I doing to encourage that? So, with all that being said, we're out of Balak and into Pinchas. So, let's go ahead and say the opening bracha for Parsha Pinchas, and let's get going. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, venatan lanu etorato, Baruch atah Adonai, noten haTorah. Amen. Amen. So, I have the wonderful privilege and opportunity to read from the Targum Yonatan. Now, I used to have Targum Ankalos, but now I have switched over to the Targum Yonatan. So, this is an incredible resource if you can get the Targum Yonatan. Now, you have to find it in English, I know, uh, unless you want to be real spiritual and just read it in Hebrew. But, um, yeah, so I'm going to start in chapter 25 of Bamibar. And come out of Parasha Balak and go into Parasha Pincus. Not really sure what the title of this podcast yet because 
This is not technically Parsha Pincus. It's not technically Parsha Balak. It's somewhere in between. So, Blockus. There we go. We're going to call it the Blockus Get You Some. Okay. Can't stop us and don't block us. Here we go. So, verse 1. I want you to think about a little well-known story called Purim. Well, it's actually a historical event, so it's not just a story. It's not just fiction. So it's non-fiction. It really happened. And I want you to think about the crucifixion of Mashiach Yeshua. Because we're about to make those, pun intended, cross. Okay? Even though we know cross is technically not the right word, but, you know, for the sake of semantics and the sake of this pun, we're going to say cross. Okay. That's the last time we're going to say that. So we're no longer going to say that word. We're going to say stake. Okay. So the stakes are high. And here we go. Yisrael dwelt in the place which is called Shatim on account of Shatuta, which is foolishness. I'm already going to interrupt myself. The Or HaChaim on this verse breaks down the word Shatim. Because by the way, the word Shatim is the same word for the wood that was used in the building of the Mishkan. And that word is the word for acacia. Acacia wood, which was the crucifixion stake of Mashiach Yeshua. According to a few uh, archaeological accounts, and because I'm so spiritual, I'm going to say that it's also something that we should really consider because... If we're looking at the fact that the Mishkan being uh, built out of atonement, namely because that's what the foundation of the half shekels are called and what the planks that surrounded the Mishkan are called, they're called atonement. So redemption and atonement are the foundation and the surroundings of the Mishkan. And it would just make sense that Mashiach Yeshua that would be available or a picture and um, alluded to at somewhere in his, sacri his sacrifice, his Akidah, uh, on the stake. So, yeah. So anyway, Acacia Wood. This is also, um, getting back to Dorakim, he was basically breaking down that the foolishness aspect of Shatim was also saying that this meant... Or this could also be uh, interpreted as strolling, like strolls, taking walks outside the clouds of glory. Okay, so anytime you're really just kind of stepping outside the camp, you know, it's technically not good. You know, most of the times when you hear outside the camp, you're like, oh, snap. Uh, no, I don't want to do that. But at this point... The people are feeling like, you know, we've been out in this wilderness, you know, this is our 40th year now, you know, so we're, we're, you know, we're ending uh, the, the Tishba'av uh, plague of everyone dying every year and making their own graves and lying in it. And, you know, we're getting ready to go take the land and, you know, Yehoshua was going to lead us in and, you know, we're kind of sad that Moshe won't go with us. But, you know, we're in this time right now. We got to go do some business over here with the Moabites and Midianites or technically with the Midianites. 
and um, the Moabites will be preserved because Ruth will be descending from them. So we don't want to mess with that. But the Midianites are going down for real. So um, while we're having all these things kind of conspiring here, we're just going to take a little walk outside the clouds of glory. And it's just like Bilam, since he couldn't curse them, finally gave up and kind of on his way out the door was like, you know what, Balak, the way that you could really, the only way to really get at the children of Israel is to hit them with kryptonite because they're kind of like Superman and superwomen and super children and super infants. So like from top to bottom, they're, they're Zakanim and their youth. They're like all like legit, but the only way to really penetrate that nation and that group of people is to make them sin against the Shem. When they sin against the Shem, then we got them. Specifically, if they sin in a sexually immoral manner, if we can get them to do that, there you go. They're all yours. They're good for the taking. So what ends up happening? Well, what ends up happening is he decides to come up with this elaborate scheme Started in Targum Yonatan and quickly going to jump over here to where am I going to jump? Oh, why don't we jump into the Midrash? Get you some. Okay, the Midrash, get you some. B'nai Yisrael, this is page 348. B'nai Yisrael camped in Shatim, feeling secure and confident. This is really what I was trying to allude to with the whole strolling outside the clouds of glory thing. Uh, and really quick, so I can finish my thought on that. Those who go outside the tent, the those who go outside the camp, these are people who have to basically use the restroom, which meant that they ate something other than manna. Because remember, the manna, when you partook of it and when you drank from the water of the well, for that fact, any of those things would not cause you to have to go to the restroom. You would not need to leave the camp. Everything was completely absorbed into your body. Into your 248 organs and 365 sinews, which, by the way, equals 613, which is the number of commandments in Torah. So ask yourself, am I supposed to do Torah? And then it's just like, am I not made of 613 elements? Uh, yeah. Or 613, you know, the total of our sinews and our organs. So anyway, um, there were people who were leprous that went outside the clouds. There were people who were not converted, but they were just kind of following beside the clouds, which is kind of a dangerous place to be because there are snakes and scorpions out there in the wilderness and there's lots of mountains and it gets dark and it's hot. It's cold, you know, because the desert has like this 100,000 degree uh, temperature swing. And so it's just like, you're not inside the clouds you're having a rough life out there even though you're technically following but you know it's kind of tough but anyway um all of that's going on and it's just like why would you want to go outside the clouds you know so you're putting yourself in a bad position pretty much is what i wanted to say so may we remain close to hashem and not desire to go outside the clouds which remember the clouds are Mashiach. So anytime that we want to pull ourselves out of Mashiach, which would mean pulling ourselves out of the mission that he gave us, which is to walk in the way, the truth, and the life, to follow him, to make Talmudim of the nations, 
If we want to do anything outside of that, that's us acting all secure and self-confident, being like, yeah, we got this. And it's like, okay, you have an enemy who's like roaming around seeking whom he can devour. Because Bilam was like, I tried my best to curse them and I couldn't. And I kind of can't do anything that Hashem doesn't want me to do anyway. So there's that, um, at least when it comes to his people. But, you know, if I construct this plan, I can get people to die. So here you go, Balak. If you can get this done, then uh, there you go. Have fun. And it's just like, yeah, great, because we got some people who are outside the cloud and it'll work on them. The people inside the clouds, it won't work on them. But we'll take what we can because we don't like these people that much. Okay. So that was my thought on that. And back to the Midrash, it says God had repelled all their enemies, including the famous magician Balaam, who had been forced to praise and bless them. A certain lightheadedness pervaded the camp. Moreover, the station Shatim was itself conductive to lewdness. Okay, so I don't know if they're going to mention it in here. I don't see it on the page, but I just want to let you know. I was reading in some source. Oh my gosh, source is hatred coming up. But they're saying at Shatim, there was this fountain that gave forth these waters. And this was the fountain that the people of Saddam, like Saddam and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, that they drank from that caused them to act immorally. So the children of Israel, when they got here, they began to partake of the same fountain. So this whole thing about the Shatim is like, it ain't good. You know, you're outside the cloud, you're hanging out, having a good time, just strolling around and oh, look, this fancy water well over here. Again, not only did you despise the manna, but you despise the very spiritual water that comes from Mashiach. The one he says, come and drink of me. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know we can drink of you and be all like satisfied and everything. But, you know, we're outside the cloud right now. We're just enjoying life. We're feeling good. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, this is not good, you know. So as I'm saying all this, I'm having personal reflection right now. And I, I would encourage all of us to because it's so easy to read these narratives and be like, yeah, man, what's wrong with these people? Like, why would they exchange God for the world? Oh, yeah, that's what that really is. Exchanging God for the world, because, you know, that, that tends to happen. You know, we really at some point are all like Bilam and we can't even overcome our own donkey. We're like so one with our donkey that it's just kind of like. It's it's uh, very just disturbing. You know, it's corrupt. You know, the donkey represents the material world and and the things in this life that we seek after and pursue. And it's like Bilam couldn't even overcome that. And the way that he would have overcome that, according to his words, is if he had a sword. And we know what the sword is. The sword is the Torah. So he did not have a sword. And then he was trying to curse the donkey, but he couldn't because the donkey outcursed him with his own words, saying so much truth that he could not contend. And another source was saying, there's so many sources of hatred, but, you know, it's like on Shabbat, like I just, 
went as hard as I could after third meal that I was just like, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read that. I'm going to read this. And I forgot all the names of what I read, but a mix of Akida Yitzhak, Rabinu Bakia, Targum Yanatin, Targum Ankalos, Sifte Chakamim, Sifre, Chizkuni, Rashi, Legend of the Jews, Midrash Get You Some, or Hakim. Like, all, I was just reading all these sources. So, at some point, and Kehot Humash, of course, at some point, that's where all this information comes from. So, it's just unloading right now. But anyway, that, you know, we need to really understand that, oh, I was going to go to my point about the donkey, says that not only did Hashem kill the donkey for the sake of the respect and dignity of Bilam, because Hashem uh, has this level of respect for all of his creatures, that, you know, a man doesn't need to be shamed by his donkey, you know, and so the donkey had to die for that. Also, the donkey had to die because the nations would worship it. Yes, Gentiles would worship the donkey because the donkey was speaking. It'd be like, at some point, there'd be a donkey religion, and we don't want that. So, had to get rid of that. Oh, and the other thing is that this donkey, when it would speak, it it spoke such truth that it could not be contended with. Which is why Bilam was basically shut down and Hashem had to go ahead and open his eyes so he could see the angel and, and have a conversation with the angel because his donkey was like taking him to school, you know, and it's just like, man, Bilam, if you're going to curse the Jews, then you're going to need to overcome this donkey. It's like, you can't overcome your donkey. How are you going to overcome this nation of Jews? Like, that's an issue. But anyway... So we all have to overcome our donkey. We all have to grab a hold of the sword of Torah and use it to cut up our own selves, cut up our own klipa, that which is so hard and harsh around our own hearts and souls that keeps us separated from Hashem. You know, and nothing can separate us from Hashem, but what can separate us from Hashem? This is a crazy concept right now because nothing can separate us from Hashem. But what does separate us from Hashem? Namely, our sins, you know, our hardness of heart, our disobedience. When we see the truth and the light and the fire and the water of Hashem's word and we say, yeah, 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 that's great. That's eternal and all, but I'm going to do this. It's just kind of like, really? Because you don't really have that long of a life to live. And you're going to choose contrary to what I'm offering you, which I'm offering you life and life abundantly. Not only that, but you will forfeit your life in the world to come if you forsake my Torah. And it's just like, man, so you're going to gain this whole world so that you can lose your soul. That's not good. You know, and I was listening to... Rabbi Blackbeard, a.k.a. Rabbi Alana Nava, and he was talking about how, um, what was saying, like we have such um, pleasures and things that we chase in this world, and it was like, really what we don't understand is that, well, number one, that's okay, because God has built us that way, we're wired, you know, we, we want pleasure, like we're supposed to have pleasure. But the problem is, is that we don't understand that the pleasure that we desire and we want 
is found in Hashem. Like the fulfillment of all the pleasures that we have, that we seek and chase after the world for, really are found in Hashem. And the things of the world that do actually give us pleasure, they're a lower level of pleasure. And what we really have to focus on is getting down to the depth and the and what really is the source of that pleasure, which again is Hashem. So we need to kind of realign, reorient our our desires and our pursuits, you know, to really find our pleasure in Hashem. You know, so I thought that was really cool just looking at this whole aspect here, being outside the clouds and in this place called Shatim, which is a place of lewdness, you know, and we have to not uh, dwell here. So anyway, let's overcome the donkey. Let's be like Mashiach Yeshua when he rode in on the donkey. You know, that's why he rode in on the donkey. He was like, I am not Bilam. I am the son of the most high God, you know, I am the son of man who came to seek and save that which is lost. I came to testify to the truth. And in order for me to do any of those things, I have to be above my donkey and ride, you know, above it. And this is Mashiach saying, take heart. I've overcome the world. So now I give you my shalom. You're welcome. You know, and it's just like, all right, so if we grab a hold of that, then we should not be tripped up. If we are tripped up, which we are, that means we need to do the best that we can to really get the tools out and to really come into the shop of Torah and mitzvot and love of Hashem and just really work all this out. So, Back to our scenario here. Says God confronted B'nai Yisrael at each station in the wilderness with a particular test. He invested in Shatim, the powerful appeal of immorality. Okay, so it's interesting that I'm speaking about immorality right now. Being a Danite myself, um, we're a tribe uh, of the north side and we're supposed to be about all the fire. And fight the spiritual indifference. But the downfall of us is that, you know, being so fiery hot, the south side has the temptation of the, the fiery hot passions of this life. And so it's just like that fire has to be mitigated with coldness, you know, so getting water and ice of the tribes of the south. And so, you know, having that ability to really rely on the rest of the congregation in that area is like, you know, a, a thing that is very necessary. So uh, I bring all that up to say that I want to encourage all of us with everything that we're facing, that we have to lean on those who are next to us, who are, yeah, who are next to us, who are beside us, those who are behind us as well. Because each one of us are on a battlefront of some sort, whether it's the north, south, east, or west. But there are people on corresponding sides to us who can help us, you know, with overcoming that which we are susceptible to as we're being very strong and diligent in another area. So again, this is a whole nother reason why in these 22 days that we really need to come together 
so that we can balance out our forces so that we can properly combat and be built up as we build up. So, all right. So now it says that this immorality is a powerful appeal. B'nai Yisrael famed for their superior morality, which again, the whole Matobu came out because Bilam saw the modesty and the privacy that the children of Israel, you know, walked in. And it was just kind of like, wow, this is cool. Like their tent openings don't even face each other. You know, they dress so wonderfully. You know, a, a man and a woman that aren't married aren't secluded alone by themselves, you know. And it's just like, that's immaculate because outside of the congregation of Israel, that is a foreign concept. It's just like, oh, yeah, I don't, this woman's not my wife. Hey, you want to hang out? You want to go drive somewhere? Or, hey, let's, you know, carpool or whatever. And it's just like, yeah, that's cool. Let's take dance classes and hang out with each other and have a good time. Let's go out and party. It's like, man, that's a lot of close quarter combat there. That's not good. And then you got, you know, how are they dressed? They're covered up. You can't see nothing, you know? Like, it's just like in the world, you see everything and you're like, oh my gosh, I wish my eyes would just like not see for the time being, you know, like somebody put some clothes on that person, you know, kind of thing. And so it's just like the children of Israel just have that element and aspect to them. And so it's like now here they are in Shatim and it's like that is completely targeted right now. So, their fame for their superior morality, even in the, even in the decadent, decadent society of Mitzrayim. Okay, so Bnei Yisrael for their famed superior, even in the decadent society of Mitzrayim, were now trapped. Okay, so even when they were in Mitzrayim, you know they had this fame. Uh, superior morality but the sin began with the lesser ones among the people after finishing their meal they decided to relax a little by visiting the bazaar outside the camp that's so interesting they put the word bazaar there it says a grave sin usually begins with slight discretion that gradually increases in severity rather than employing their spare time to study torah some Jews decided to indulge instead in idle matters. That's a problem. Here's the grand scheme. The old woman stationed outside each booth displayed her merchandise and quoted a price, commenting, I know these wares are expensive, but we have a variety of cheap articles inside. Okay, I'm not going to make any comment to that because it's just... It's just not, that's just not even cool. It's like, yeah, yeah, you don't want this expensive thing, but, you know, if you just go inside, you can get something cheaper, you know, cheapskate, you know, broke over here. Like the opposite of baller. Why don't you just go inside and get the cheap stuff since you don't want to deal with this? And it's just like, probably shouldn't go shopping if you can't afford what you're paying for. I said I wasn't going to comment on that, and I totally did. All right, slicha. Here we go. The Jew would enter the tent 
and encounter a young and attractive Midianite girl who asked a very low price for the same wares he had just seen outside. Chatting invitingly, she told the Jew, We just can not understand why you Jews hate us and refuse to marry us. We like your people. Aren't we all descendants of Terach, the father of Abraham? See, the problem with that statement is being a descendant of Terach is not being a descendant of Abraham because Terach wasn't Jewish, you know, like he was still steeped in idol worship. So what fellowship does darkness have with light, basically? Anyway, see, I give you this article as a gift because we are related. You seem like an old acquaintance. Why don't you sit down and eat something? It's just like, didn't the text just say they ate and finished their meal, they decided to relax, and they go outside the bazaar? It's like, dude, first of all, you're not even hungry. Second of all, she's not offering you manna. Why are you eating this? Anyway, if the Jew refused, she would say, you need not to object on religious grounds. You don't need to give me this whole talk about it being kosher is what she's saying. Like it, it, you know, it's, it's clean. It's biblically clean. Like you can eat this. I know it's not kosher, like glot kosher or whatever, but it's like, okay. So then it says, I know that you follow dietary laws. See here, fatted calves and hens order that they be slaughtered according to your requirements. And then you can eat them. Meanwhile, you can have a drink. So it's like, look, you want to eat kosher? Great. Why don't you just go ahead and send these off and then sit down and drink this? Okay. So now each girl had a flask of heavy, heavy Aramaic wine ready, which she offered him. At that time, non-Jewish wine was not forbidden. So a Jew could not demur for religious reasons. You know, at some point, with you being Shomer Mitzvot, you know, being observant, it it kind of uh, it be kind of comes null and void if you're placing yourself so far outside the realms of kedusha, of kedusha, you know, holiness, i.e., walking outside the camp, putting your place, putting yourself in places that are very, very precarious. You know, your observance kind of becomes null and void because you're putting yourself out of range. You know, like, this is really graphic, but if you're an observant Jew and you're going into a strip club, there's only so much that you're keeping your zitzit and your kosher eating is going to do for benefiting you because, there, first of all, there's not a mezuzah on the door. There shouldn't be a mezuzah on the door because that'd be awkward. Then, second of all, the environment, all the immorality and all the, the smells, the sounds, the sights. I mean, it's a cauldron of just crudeness this literally is the picture of shatim it's like a jew walking into a strip club like why and then you can't sit there and ask them to make your hot wings kosher at a strip club you just can't i mean why would you and second of all don't ask them for kosher beverages i mean it's ridiculous like what okay so that's enough 
No, no, don't go to strip clubs. It's not not good. Okay. Now, um, this is just crazy. Okay, so it says when the Jew was intoxicated. Oh, really? So now we're getting drunk. Why not? Or why not? Okay, he was invited to further intimacies, but only on condition that he would first worship her idol, Baal Peor. The Jew would reply, I will not bow to this idol. The girl then explained to him, that's okay. You don't need to bow to it. You just perform your normally body functions before, silly. Yeah, so again not bowing to idols is like cool yeah we don't need that we we know you don't bow to idols but this is what you have to do and it's like the abominable service of this god required his worshipers to eat and drink and then bear and relieve themselves in front of the idol so this cult symbolized the gentile nation's entire philosophy you live in order to satisfy your animalistic desires you have no reason to feel inhibited not even before your gods their doctrine of absolute shamelessness is diametrically opposed to the Torah concept of zinut, which derives from the constant awareness of the presence of God, who created man to serve him at all times. R.S.R. Hirsch comments that Darwinism or other theories of evolution are the current version of the pet or cult. They define man as a highly developed animal denying his God-given personality. Consequently, he is entitled to devote his life to satisfying his animal instincts. Yeah. So, where are we with this? You know, Parsha Pincus picks up right after this incident. So, that all starts going down. There's a plague that's breaking out. And then Zimri has the nerve to elevate himself above Moshe and be like, look, I am the leader of the Jews. And Cosby, you need to sleep with me because if you are with me, then you're going to be on. I mean, because it was like she was saying that I was only given instructions to be with Moshe. And so. You know, if it's not Moshe, then I can't do it. And then, oh, here we go. Why don't I just read it? It's page 351. Here's what Zimri said. I am greater than Moshe. He's descended from the third tribe, Levi. And I'm from the second tribe, Shimeon. It's like, okay, because Shimeon was not even counted in the blessings at one point. So, yeah, that's not good. Anyway, it uh, says that... Um, to prove that I am on par with Moshe, I will openly lead you to the camp. Brazenly, Zimri brought the Gentile woman before Moshe, inquired, Ben Amram, oh really? Just call them all out of name now. Uh, is this woman permitted to me or forbidden? She's forbidden, replied Moshe. Now Zimri, digging in. God said that you are trustworthy. Since you have declared that I am not allowed to live with this woman, you must admit your own wife is likewise prohibited because she is a daughter of a Midianite priest. Only problem with that is Yitro converted. 
But anyway, I digress. So, all that happens. There's this whole thing. Moshe's silent. Pincus comes up and is all like, uh, excuse me, what's going on? Why are you talking to my uncle like that? Alright, so... Uh, it says, why doesn't anyone take action? This page 353. Why doesn't anyone take action to kill Zimri to rectify this desecration of the name of Hashem? Pincus is thinking. He says this out loud. It says, where are the lions, which are the members of Yehuda and Dan? Where is Benjamin the wolf? Wow, that's incredible that he would even do that so there's this whole thing about him slaying Zimri I'm going to pick back up over here on the Targum Yonatan because I didn't even show you the crucifixion and Purim story because by the way when they were in the tents with the women that is the picture of the feast of Ahasuerus for Purim uh, King Ahasuerus when he had the whole six month plus, you know, party where he was displaying his riches, which, by the way, there's a whole drop on him and Pirke de Rebbe Eliezer about how rich he was, but he still decided to take spoils from Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and the Beit HaMikdash destruction and all that and parade them around. And by the way, the Halakha on Parsha Balak, practical Halakha says that there are three instances that a person can take the law into their own hands. I remembered one of them, and it said that if items of the Beit HaMikdash have been stolen or taken away, then we are allowed to take the law into our own hands and track them down and kill, if necessary, to get them back. And so you think about the fact that there were a whole bunch of people at this party that the king was throwing, and nobody took action and brought the vestments back to a safe place. Now, obviously, with the temple being destroyed, you would think, well, that can't be, you know, a prescription that we take a hold of. But it's like, but yeah, you don't allow the sacred items to be paraded around at some, uh, you know, pagan party. It's just like, you don't want to let that happen. So at least take the items out and put them in your home or take them to some kind of safekeeping where they could be respectfully preserved, but I digress. So as they're in these tents with these women and uh, serving Baal Peor by eating and drinking and relieving themselves and having relations with these women, okay, that is why in Purim that Hashem allowed Haman to rise up against them and to bring on a death decree and the people started freaking out. And so that's all going on. And then in verse three of chapter 25 in the Targum Yonatan, it says, and the people of the house of Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor like the nail in the wood, which is not separated, but by breaking up the wood or with the splinters. So, in other words, they pierced themselves into idol worship, you know, and obviously when Mashiach was pierced, he was pierced for the sake of the sins of the world, which are the desecrations of Hashem. So, he who knew no sin became sin for us, and he placed himself on the tree, which anyone who's placed on a tree is considered cursed, which we're going to read about in Devarim in a little while. 
and a few Torah portions in there. So I'm going to jump to 1 Corinthians 6 as a little swerve on that and pick up in verse 15. It says, do you have knowledge that your bodies are members of Mashiach? Should then you take the members of Mashiach and make them members of a prostitute? So in other words, uh, which is Hashem forbid. Why don't I just keep reading? I'm just, I just want to comment so much. Okay. Or do you not have knowledge that the one joining himself to the prostitute will become one with her? Yeah, you know, because it's like, and they shall become one flesh. Bereshit 224. But here's the problem with that. If you're with a prostitute, you're not with a follower of Hashem. You're not with your wife. So it's an improper attachment. Verse 17, but the one with Devekut to Hashem, which is cleaving an attachment, has union with the Ruach HaKodesh with God. Okay, so if you have attached yourself to Hashem, you have union in the Ruach HaKodesh with him. Okay, so in other words, cleaving to Hashem and keeping his mitzvot, and there is a Talmudic passage that was dropping that Devekut with Hashem is the picture of uh it's a greater concept than that of a lid that is joined with its pot okay so if you put a lid on a pot that's a lower level of what devekut means because when you think about how succinct and how uh properly a lid fits on a pot it's kind of like that's that's a really tight connection but it's like but to understand devekut that's where you start. You start with a lid on the pot and Devekut's on a higher connection than that. And then it goes on to say, as if it needed to say this, but it was very violent when it dropped this. It said that this connection causes the the two parties to be so one that the two are like interchangeable. And I know I need to quote this. So I'm going to take this time now and before this segment ends, before this podcast ends, I'm going <laughs> to look that up real quick because I think it's worth doing that. So, where were we? Um, you have to stand by for a second. Yeah, I should have just, uh, <laughs> kept this as a quick, uh, reference. 
Okay. Um, for the sake of time, because I really don't know if I could find that again, uh, we're going to let that be Sources Hatred for now. And I will do a quick search and find that uh, again in my notes and bring that back up later. So, but in the meantime, so what ends up happening with Pincus is that he takes the spear from the tent peg of their tent that they're in and basically impels Zimri and Cosby in the middle of their act. So that which was outside the camp was now brought inside the camp, namely to the tent of a Shemanite, uh Zimri. And so Pincus was not going to allow that to continue because he was just like, somebody needs to stand up and do something. So it says that when he when they saw, okay, where are the lions? When they saw they were quiet, he arose from among his Sanhedrin and took a lance in his hand. Twelve miracles were performed for Pincus at the time he went in after the man of Israel. Number one, first sign he would have, the first sign would have parted them, but could not. So, in other words, when he impaled Zimri and Cosby, they should have separated, but they remained together. It says their mouth was closed. This is number two. They could not cry out for help. Number three, he drove the lance through both of them. Number four, it remained fixed in the wound. Number five, he would bear them aloft. The lintel was lifted up for him like the door opened by itself so he can walk out of the tent. Number six, he carried them through the whole camp for miles without fatigue. These people are still alive and he's walking around and showing them in the shame and disgrace of their act of harlotry and desecration of Hashem at its highest. And then it says that the lance was made so strong it was not to be broken with the load. And then it says, number nine, the iron transpired or the iron transpierced them, but was not withdrawn. Number 10, an angel came and made bare their corpses in the sight of people. So now they're up there hanging naked, like technically how Mashiach was hanging when he was on his crucifixion stake. And then their blood was thickened so as to not flow upon him. But when he had borne them through the camp, it broke forth and they died. So their blood, you know, uh, came out when they died. So taking a quick break, we'll be right back after this. Okay, I had to do a quick abrupt ending because I was approaching the end of the segment. And now here we go. So I was in the middle of talking about the 12 miracles that were performed for Pincus when he went into the tent of Zimri and Cosby. So uh, just to kind of reiterate and update on the title, because you're like, what in the world is Balachas? Balachas is the combination of Balak and Pincus. And that is my creative title for this drosh, which is in between the two Torah portions. And uh, yeah, anyway. So, like I said, there were 12 miracles. Uh, again, quickly running through. The first sign was he would have parted them, but he could not. So, 
uh, for the piercing. They were together. And then it says their mouth was closed. They could not cry out for help. That was number two. Number three, he drove the lance through both of them. Number four, the lance remained fixed in the wound. Number five, he bore them aloft and the door was opened for him. So until he went out of the tent. Number six, he carried them through the whole camp six miles without fatigue. Get you some of that. Boy, is a uh, drill training over here. Basic training. Got nothing on him, I guess. Okay, number seven. He held them up by his right arm. Oh, really? And the sight of their Kendrick, who had no power to hurt him. That was another thing. The background was saying that um, if he would have done this act, since Zimri was the leader of the tribe of Shimeon, he would have had all of his, uh, his whole tribe would have just been like, no, I know you ain't messing with our leader. Like, we coming for you, boy. You know, and it was just like, well, because he did this, Hashem provided angels that protected him. Which, Bezrat Hashem will read that. Yeah, why don't we read that right now? Nothing but a bunch of swerves. Okay. Says, God performed 12 miracles. This is the Midrash. Get you some. Page 354. Uh, and then it says that... Where are we at here? It says, when Pincus displayed the slain couple to the people, the members of Shimeon wanted to kill him. God renewed the plague, and whoever attempted to attack Pincus collapsed. So, yeah. Oh, by the way, just so you can understand, too, because we always say this at Lapid, and we're like, you know, just because Hashem is doing miracles doesn't mean that we don't do anything, you know, or that, you know, our observance somehow nullifies or makes whether in the end of the spectrum that you want to put us on that it makes our salvation or that it gives us merit to do things or whatever i don't know what kind of ideal ideologies that are out there but you know whatever so to say for this it says that God did the plague, like renewed it so that the people who would come and attack Pincus collapse. But Pincus, it says, was aware of this and cast the slain couple to the ground and began to pray on behalf of the tribe of Shimeon. Like, basically, this is a picture of Hashem forgive them for they know not what they do. What did it say he prayed? It says, Tehillim 106.30. And Pincus arose and pleaded, Hashem listened to his tefillah and the plague came to an end. Yeah. So, even though Hashem was like doing all this miraculous stuff for him, he really was like, you know what, Hashem? Please forgive these people. Cause my enemies to be blessed. And basically, they stopped dying. So, he literally put himself in a very dangerous position because they're all coming out to attack him. And Hashem's like, no, I got you. And he's like, yes, but Hashem, mercy over judgment, because that's what you taught me. So, yeah, I would like to pray and ask for that now. So, again, with Pinkas doing this thing, he literally put his life in danger. And then not only that, but he prayed for those who were trying to kill him. So, yeah. Um, I mean, just really zoom out on all this right now. 
zoom way out to where you can see all the elements as one big picture because it's a overwhelming tapestry of what literally happened with the crucifixion account of Mashiach. You know, there's these unfair trials, these unfair perspectives that are being cast upon Yeshua. There's all this immorality that's happening because the people at one point literally say that this guy is not our Messiah, Caesar is our Messiah. And it's just like that is idolatry at its worst because the people have unified themselves with a Roman ruler, you know, like they've disjoint, they're disconnected themselves from Hashem and then connected themselves with Caesar. And it's just like, wow, that's the picture of Zimri and Cosby. Like, we'll just go to another nation here and uh, take in, you know, relations with them. We're, we're going to walk in their steps and be with them and, uh, you know, Whatever, Hashem, we'll we'll cast off your yoke. So it's just very tragic. So now back to the Targum Yonatan on the twelve miracles. So uh that was number seven where the people had no power to hurt him. Number eight, the lance was made so strong that it could not be broken with the load. Number nine, the Iron pierced them, but was not withdrawn. Number 10, the angel came and made bear their corpses inside the people. Again, there's the shamefulness. Number 11, they lingered alive till they had been carried through the entire camp, lest the priest tabernacle should be defiled by the dead. So they're just hanging up there alive. And then it says, number 12, the blood thickened so as to not flow upon him. So he didn't get any blood on him. So he would not have had to be sprinkled. And then it says, with the ashes of the red heifer, of course. And it says, um, but when he had borne them throughout the camp, it broke forth and they died. Answering, he said before the Lord of the world, can it be on the account of these that 24,000 of Israel shall die? Immediately the compassions of Hashemayim were moved and the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And the number who died by the pestilence was 24,000. Who are the 24,000 that died? It says the 24,000 Jews that died in the plague were all from the tribe of Shimeon. So yeah, that's correct, right? All right, so that's kind of where we're picking up here with um, Pincus. Now, that's everything that went down at the end of Parsha Balak. Now, as we go into Parsha Pincus, it says, And Hashem spoke with Moshe. That's a very, very noteworthy transition. Because what's about to happen, you need to know that Hashem initiated it. This isn't something that's MSU. This isn't something that we can just go willy-nilly and do. Hashem is the author, perfecter, and finisher of our Imunah. So, verse 11. Pincus, the zealous, the son of Eleazar, ben Aharon, 
the priest. Okay, so you know, Aharon just had his passing a couple of parashahs ago. And now, the one who took his place has a son whose name is Pincus. And now Pincus gets elevated to the status of a Cohen. Because the only Kohanim that were around during this current time was Eliezer and Itamar, you know, and it's just like an Aharon used to be. So now, in order to have more uh, Kohanim, you have to have children. So it's just kind of like Slika. You have to be a descendant of Aharon, basically. But with Pincus, he's already ahead of time going ahead and being elevated. Now, that's a a point to note because Pincus was alive when the inauguration of the Mishkan happened and with the choosing of the Kohanim happened. He was not uh, designated as a Kohen. He was designated as a Levite because he was already alive. And the thing is, is that any descendants born after this point would become Kohanims. Like they could be Kohanim, Slika. They could be considered for that position. But if you're already alive, then you can't be considered for that position because you're already here. So it's to the descendants. Okay. So now it says that Pincus, the zealous, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aharon, the priest, had turned away my anger from the children of Israel. In that, when zealous with my zeal, he slain the sinners who were among them. For his sake, I have not destroyed the children of Israel in my indignation. It's important to know my zeal. You know, because the zeal of Hashem is all based off of his Torah. And you look around and see what Pincus did. He considered, first of all, Yehuda should be coming up because he's the king. He's the lawgiver, the one who really brings out the enforcement of everything. But if he isn't going to do anything, what about Dan? Dan is supposed to be the lion's cub. He's supposed to do something. No? What about Benjamin? Because he's next in line to Yosef, which really is the chosen firstborn of the people. So we'll go down the ranks here. Benjamin, not only that, is also likened to a wolf. So he should be like really like ravenous and like ready to do something. It's like, no. Okay, now we got the Beit Dean. Now we got the descendants of Yehuda, the descendants of Benjamin. And all the Danites, like, nobody is stepping up. It's like, this has got to stop. Like, somebody has got to take charge here, you know, and bring some justice. And so that's the the beautiful picture of the zeal of Hashem is there is all this, there are all these protocols and all these channels that are traveled first. It's not just something horrible is happening and then boom, we're just going to drop the hammer on it. It's like, were they warned? Is proper justice being allowed here? You know, is this an act of chesed? Because ultimately what Pincus was doing is he wanted people to no longer die. And in the Orchard of Delights, it talks about the fact that with what Pincus did, 
he caused there to be the end of arguments and complaints in the wilderness. Now, obviously, this is in the 40th year, which is like, okay, yeah, they can go six months or whatever without arguing. But it's important to know that after this point, there were no more complaints uttered to Hashem while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. So, his sacrifice that he made to put himself in a position as dangerous, to take out the immoral act and the desecration of Hashem, to take that all out, that ended all of the strife and, and bitterness and dissension between man and Hashem, the Israelites and Hashem, basically. So, that is important to note. And the fact that this act, you know, it says that it was a courageous act. He restored God's honor. He ignored the importance of a Nasi, you know, and then it says he demonstrated that God's honor matters above all. His achievement exemplifies powerful results that can be achieved even by one individual who acts for the sake of heaven. So what Pincus did is a small picture of what Mashiach Yeshua was later to come and do. You know, because everything that Mashiach Yeshua did from the time, I mean, obviously from the time he was born, but I mean, really zooming in on Garden of Gethsemane, the beginning of his capture, you know, he didn't want the soldier's ear to get chopped off. So he put it back on and told Kepha to put his sword away. Then he went through all of his unfair judgments by the Kohanim and the religious leaders and all that kind of stuff, which, by the way, no court dates or court uh, sessions should be happening after sundown. And all throughout the night, they're taking Mashiach to this court and that court and this court. And it's just like, how are you guys even awake right now? And it's just like, and furthermore, y'all shouldn't even be doing this. But he's going through all these trials. He's not saying anything. He's letting them, you know, just kind of throw everything out. Then he gets whipped later. Then he has to carry his crucifixion stake. You know, just like Yitzhak had to carry the wood, you know, when he was uh, taken to the Akedah. So there's that. And then, you know, they pierce him, you know, uh, what well, before that they were. Uh, putting on garments and a crown of thorns and punching him in the face and telling him to prophesy who hit you, putting a scepter in his hand, making him look like a king, but they were beating him all while this was going on, making fun of him. And then they put him on the stake and then they're telling him to come down, save yourself. All this stuff. I mean, wow. You know, that was zeal for Hashem. So if what Pincus did caused him to merit being a kahuna like a, a Cohen uh, with an everlasting covenant how much more so Mashiach Yeshua with what he did you know really think about the impact and the comparison of that so back to the Targum it says in verse 12 chapter 25 swearing by my name I say to him Behold, I decree to him my covenant of Shalom and will make him an angel of the covenant that he may ever live to announce the redemption at the end of days.
Wow. There's just so much information over here. Picking up to Lakute Sikot with that. And this is what it says. That Pincus is identified with Eliyahu, the messenger of redemption. The priesthood is not a quality that can be earned through divine service. Instead, it is granted from above, defining the nature of a person's existence. We are thus forced to conclude that even before Pincus slew Zimri, he was fit for the priesthood. Nevertheless, the characteristic was not expressed until he revealed his zealousness. Why? Because the intent was that Pincus reveal his potential through his own divine service. The fusion of opposite tendencies is alluded to by God's statement. Behold, I am granting him my covenant of shalom. For shalom involves resolution of conflict. Pincus combined revelation from above and his own efforts of refinement, demonstrating within his person a microcosm of the future redemption. For this reason, Pincus is identified with Eliyahu. This is how you understand that Hashem has already saved us and we're Torah observant. Because divinity was revealed from above the light was shown forth into creation the light was offered to us and upon us receiving it now we bring forth that refinement of our character and divine service and so we fuse those things together and that is what the future redemption is supposed to be the fusion of divine revelation with divine service so uh wanted to bring that up and then I had a whole bunch of uh, little tabs here so I'm trying to make sure I go through them all. Uh, okay. Yep. All right, got that. Beautiful Brukashem. So with all that being said, I got tracked into Messy Lot, Yeshurim, which is a Musar book. Because on Yod Zayin, Betamuz, which is supposed to be a fast day, which was moved to Yod Chet Tamuz, uh, the thing that I did that day was do some self-introspection. And, you know, you don't study Torah that day. So it's just kind of like, well, what am I going to do? Uh, so I was thinking through what is my part in this whole aspect of Tikkun and hastening the redemption. And I started looking into Mesela Yesharim about purity because that's one of my areas that I really strive for. And something that I really don't quite grasp because purity is not exactly what we think it is. And so as I was looking at purity, let me just let me just give you what I saw. It says, purity is the rectification of the heart and of the thoughts. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Tehillim 51.12 And so, if we think about the rectifying of our heart and our thoughts, you know, like really lining up our bodies, you know, like 
like I was talking about earlier, how it's like we want all these things out of this life, but it's it's like it's only found in Hashem, you know? So when we pursue Hashem, we end up receiving that which we chase after in this world. And how do we pursue Hashem? We pursue Hashem through divine service. We pursue we pursue Hashem through community, building up other people, you know, uh, encouraging and helping and shining, you know, being a light, ministering to other people, you know, and things like that. And so lining up your heart and your thoughts is just kind of like that's purity, you know. I, so I was really thinking on those things and it really got down into saying, you know, Hashem wants our heart. And it footnoted Sanhedrin 106b. So obviously, at the end of the fast, I had to crack open the Talmud. I could not wait to crack open the Talmud. To look at Sanhedrin 106b. First thing, a quick swerve that it starts off with is the death of Belam. Yeah, it, it did. It started out with the death of Belam. <laughs> so it's crazy it's just like okay so in order for us to really have purity in our service in our heart and our thoughts and our and our heart to be aligned we have to take out Belam and it's just like okay I see what you did there I see what you did there okay but anyway it says so Belam was killed with the sword so again Torah takes out that but here's what I want to get down to because Mashiach Again, we're talking just crucifixion. Like this is this is what this is today, you know. So anyway, Mashiach was con- considered to be 33 at his death, right? So, check this out. A certain heretic said to Rabbi Hanina, "Have you heard how old Belam was when he died?" Rabbi Hanina said to him, "It is not written explicitly in the Torah." But from the fact that it is written, bloody and deceitful men shall not live half their days. Tehillim 55:24. This indicates that he was 32 or 34 years old. What's the middle number? What's the mean? What's the average? 33. Okay. Or I should say, what's that called? The, the median? What's the median of that? Yeah, what's the middle of that? So Mashiach at this really perfectly balanced point between 32 and 34 is 33, living out half his days because his death was literally our death, the death of the blood and deceitful men. Because remember, why was the temple destroyed? Murder, idolatry, immorality, you know, basis hatred, all the same, like the opposite of Nasev and Ishma. So that's that was the issue so he embodied that so that he could take on death for us to bring us into life all right so it's going on it's doing all that and then this happens it says but nevertheless when rav yehuda would remove one of his shoes the rain would immediately fall Whereas we cry out and no one notices us. Rather, Hakadosh Baruchu seeks the heart, and the barometer of greatness is devotion of the heart, 
and not the amount of Torah that one studies. As it is written, but the Lord looks on the heart. First Shamuel 16.7 So it's about our heart. You know, like, yes, we need to be Torah observant. Yes, we need to follow Mashiach. But what it, where is our heart? You know, and it's just like, that's really what we need to pay attention to is our heart. Where was Pincus's heart? You know, Pincus's heart was in such a place that Hashem was like, this guy needs to be a Cohen forever. And also he needs to be the front runner from Mashiach. Like, I'm telling you, that's a heart right there. Because, you know, you think about Yochanan, what he was doing while he was out in the wilderness, immersing people, calling them to make teshuva. I mean, what kind of heart is that? That's a heart that says, I want to see Hashem. I want to see the final redemption. I want the olive. Like, man, bringing the converts. Because you realize when you undergo a mikvah of teshuva, that's a conversion. You know, you, you literally move from death into life when it comes to that. So, wanted to bring that up. And that naturally uh, took me into... The Big Green Book, which I did not look up the 51 uh, verse, but what I did look up was Tehillim 25.14, because that was also in Sanhedrin 106b. And um, it says that Tehillim 25.14 is the secret of God is revealed to those who fear him. Only to them, whereas those who pursue wisdom but never fail to fear God and observe the commandments will never uncover God's secret. That's Radak. So, again, where is your heart? Because if you are seeking Hashem, you're observing His mitzvot, but your heart is not in the right place, you fail to fear Hashem, you know, it's just like, wow. You're not going to see anything. And you're going to burn out and you're going to be like, this tour is too hard. This is this doesn't make any sense. I might as well just listen to the people who are telling me not to do this. But the problem is the heart. That's the barometer. Because it doesn't matter how much tour you know, how much tour you study. If you got a bad heart, it's not good. And then it continues to say he makes his covenant known to them, to those who fear Hashem, basically. What is the covenant? According to the source called Metzudot, that is the Torah. The Torah is the covenant. So literally, when you talk about Pincus, he's given a covenant of Shalom. He's given the Torah of Shalom, the Torah of Mashiach as an everlasting covenant. So there's that. Then it says there is this secret and it goes into all these different passages, but namely it says the secret of circumcision. Because it says that there is a sowed, which is secret of God that is revealed. It says, what is God's secret? The, the mitzvah of circumcision, which it says occurs at the end of this verse and the phrase, he makes his covenant known to them. For the first 24 generations, or for the first 20 generations of history, God kept this mitzvah secret until Abraham arose and God revealed it to him. 
God told Abraham that by circumcising himself, he would take the sod, the secret of God. The gematria of sod is 70. God said to Abraham, I will raise up 70 souls from you and the merit of your circumcision, alluding to the 70 descendants of Abraham that went down to Mitzrayim. Furthermore, said God, from those 70 souls, I will raise the 70 elders from whom I will raise Moshe, who will teach Torah in 70 language and the merit of what and the merit of circumcision. As it is written, the secret of God is to those who fear him, and he makes his covenant known to them. Bereshit Rabbah 49.2 So yeah, Torah in 70 language. If the Torah is not meant for the nations, then I don't know why the Torah is written in their language, or transmitted in their language, or why Acts chapter 2 even happened. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, we say it in the Shema. I mean, I don't get what the issue is that we don't think other people who are not Jewish should become Jewish. I mean, I don't know. It's like we need to go make converts or something. Something about making disciples of all the nations, teaching them everything I've taught you. Mashiach taught Torah, so, you know, like, probably need to be teaching Torah to people so that they could enter into the kingdom and Hashem can make their his secret known to them. And while we're at it, Mashiach said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Tehillim 27, 11, God, teach me your way and lead me in your straight path because of my watchful enemies. One of, one of the wise of heart said, those who wish to overcome their enemies should increase their service to God. Ibn Ezra. A Hasidic thought called off the beaten path. Way, which is Derek in Hebrew, refers to a safe trodden path. Path, which is Orach, refers to an untrodden path whose travelers are at risk of losing their way. Allegorically, those who take the safe and trodden path are those who are completely immersed in holy pursuits. They do not engage in any idle conversation with the spiritually dull masses. Those who take the riskier path, in contrast, reach out and converse with the masses for the sake of heaven. To teach them or to increase their love or reverence of God. The latter path is fraught with dangers. Its travelers can easily slip from the path of goodness and begin speaking purely idle talk with the masses whom they engage. They must therefore pray, God, teach me your way, the well-trodden path upon which I can travel on my own, but lead me on a path I cannot travel on the untrodden path alone. I need you to lead me to ensure that my path remains straight and untwisted. Baal Shem Tov. Alright, so then it goes into, believe it or not, talking about the psalm in practice is the month of Elul. And it says how this psalm is recited daily during the month of Elul. And after the month of Av is the month of Elul. So, it was already said before that 
this season that we're in right now with Tammuz and Ta'av is fire or water meeting fire. You know, the month of Av is fire. The month of Tammuz is water. And these two are clashing, you know, with the giving of the Torah and the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash. Because the commentaries go on and say the destruction of the temple is the birth of the Mashiach, you know. And Rabbi Griffin did such a wonderful job by saying, yes, of course, because Mashiach says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. So there's that. So literally you're looking at if you really combine the fire and the water, which is, by the way, is the mikvah of Mashiach, which is one of teshuva and one of rectification of the old man being made new, being made whole, being made complete by Hashem's indwelling within us. You know, you really find that this is the the stage that we must set for entering into Elul and Rosh Hashanah, like to go into Judgment Day. You know, if you're really making Teshuva on Teshuva before Teshuva with Teshuva, I mean, all those different aspects of Teshuva is like all coming together here. It's just like that's powerful and that's incredible because Teshuva really takes you to a level that is beyond time and space. And it, Teshuva, again, it causes your former mistakes, your former errors and sins to become merits, you know. And so all of our mourning basically is turned into rejoicing. And, you know, it was really cool to enter into the fast this year by saying, no, this is a happy fast, you know, because on Yom Kippur, it's a wonderful time. You know, you're really cleaning out everything. You're getting a better vessel, you know, and you're becoming new. You know, you're becoming a newborn babe. And so it's just like you should be excited, you know, that you get to be considered to be on the level of an angel. Because angels don't have any need for food or physical relations or like between the man and the woman type physical relations. Um, the husband and the wife. So you got. And, you know, and having to anoint yourself with perfumes and all this kind of stuff and oils and bathe and all that kind of stuff. And to be on this uh, greater level, so to speak, and your mind is so cleared and uh, focused and attached to Hashem because you're fasting the time you would spend eating you're now spending with Hashem and it's just like that's powerful so um if we're doing that now that increases the tremendous potential over the next few months of just really like transforming you know so Baruch Hashem all this may it may it truly be that we're shaking the heavens, you know, like Hashem, come on, please. Like we have our converts here, like can you send our king, please, on the clouds? Like we're ready. You know, let's transform the world, you know. So one of the things that um or one of the other things I guess I wanted to share from was Pearl K. de Rebbe Eliezer. Kind of at that point where you kind of feel like you've been sharing a whole bunch of sources and you're like, I don't know which way is up right now. Because, uh, yeah, just a lot just happened. 
Let's go with this. It says that Rebbe Eliezer in chapter 47, page 96, says, The Holy One, blessed be he, changed Pincus' name to Eliyahu Hanavi. For about Pincus, it says, Behold, I give him my covenant of shalom, Bamibar 2512. And it says about Eliyahu Hanavi, my covenant was with him, life and shalom, Malachi 2.5. Furthermore, Eliyahu is called the Giladite, although he was not an inhabitant of Gilead, because Pincus caused Israel to do teshuva in Gilead. God granted Eliyahu slash Pincus everlasting life in this world and in the world to come. God gave him and his descendants a rich reward, whether they are Zadokim or evildoers, by granting him eternal priesthood so that all his descendants will be Kohanim. God gave him and his descendants a rich reward, whether they are Zadokim or evildoers. Okay, it's pretty intense because it's just like the Zadokim or people who are walking in righteousness, the evildoers are people who are sinners. But when sinners repent, you know, there's great rejoicing in Hashemayim. And so if you think about that's granted to Pincus and his descendants, you know, righteous or evildoer. You know, whether you have been Jewish and you've grown up, you know, just reciting Shema twice a day and really loving Hashem, or whether you had no care in the world about Hashem, and now you do, you know, it's just like, great, welcome, we've been expecting you. So I think that's just kind of crazy and amazing because that really leaves no room for excuses that. You can fit on the spectrum of being righteous or evil, but that doesn't disqualify you from entering into the covenant. So the key there, though, is entering into the covenant. Because at some point, you have to realize your own personal righteousness is as filthy rags before Shem. And at some point, with the help of Shem, if you're walking in ways that are evil and wicked, that you would make teshuva and live, you know, because sin really ultimately leads you into death and the wages of sin is death. So really consider all these things. Now, all of that to say, looking as we are between these parashot and getting ready to finish out the rest of parashot pinkas, you know, what have we learned here? You know, what what do we receive from this illumination that can cause us to be transformed? And I don't know about you, but I just see this whole idea of actualizing the potential. That's what we really have before us is that Mashiach has already offered been offered up for us. His resurrection has already been brought forth for us. The spiritual circumcision that he's granted us has really unified us with himself and removed us from the patterns of this world. And so what we really have to do is actualize that from our hearts 
and from our thoughts and really, you know, make it happen. So I want to bless each of you for your time and thank you for being with me on this podcast. And um, this was kind of different, I realized, because, you know, I was over so many different sources, but the the overall thing is I just wanted to encourage and inspire everyone to really, you know, step it up, you know, turn up, basically, that these three weeks are really a blessing for us. And all of us as the children of Israel, when we come together, I mean, we have awesomeness, we have like, world changing ability. So let's do that. So I pray that in your own home, that your lives and your worlds will be changed and that we will truly merit the coming of Mashiach Yeshua even this year. And may it be speedily and soon in our days. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah emet, vechaye olam natabet okeinu. Baruch atah Adonai, noten haTorah. Amen. This is Shomerman, over and out. Shalom. Shalom. Really quick, I wanted to just add in my commentary about the two parties being interchangeable. Uh, this was actually from Rabenu Bakya, Bamibar 25.3. says, Thus Israel attached itself to Peor. And it says that uh, the word here, which is Vayizmad, is from the same root as Vayismad Be'el Pa'or, the word, a yoke of oxen. So it's like a yoking, this attachment. And it says the meaning of the expression is that man and woman coupled together. There is a difference in meaning between the expression, although both express a state of togetherness. Devekut is a less okay it says and is a less intimate relationship and then it's talking about a union it says almost if the torah had written devekut looser coupling than god forbid this would have been vaidabak yisrael lebaal peor here is having been such a grave sin that it could not have been repaired because it's saying that if it was the vacuum, it couldn't have been repaired because the vacuum has this very, very higher level meaning, as I was saying before. And then it says this consideration is also reflected in the sages saying in Sanhedrin 64, that whereas the attachment of was comparable to the Israelites uh, to the deity being a lid over a pot, the attachments of the Israelites to their own God is described as you who cleave to Hashem, your God, i.e. a far closer attachment than that to a lid to the pot. So the way that they were connected with Baal Peor was like a lid over a pot.
but that's not closer than their attachment to Hashem. Then it says that when applied to two entities, the vacut, the term implies that they are so alike and clinging to each other as to be interchangeable. According to the Bereta, the term a bracelet worn by a woman is the same word that's used for the connection that the children of Israel had here with Baal Peor. While the vacut implies a tight bond. So, Anyway, that was Rebbeinu Bakya that said that when the two entities are devekut, that it implies that they are so alike and clinging to each other, they can be interchangeable. So, there you go. That's my source, Rebbeinu Bakya, Bamibar 25.3, devekut. All right, shalom.